millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. On this day... In 1939, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi hordes invaded Poland and thus began what we now know as the Second World War. The beasts of fascism caused the deaths of scores of millions of people beginning on this day in worldwide terms. Of course, they had already begun butchering their opponents in the years preceding, from 1933 to 1939. So, we must never forget not only the war, but who won the war. The great wartime alliance of the then USSR, Great Britain, and the United States of America. And not forgetting China either, which actually lost the second largest number of people in the Second World War. Yet neither China nor Russia, the successor state to the USSR, are present in Poland for the 80th anniversary commemorations. Why not? They've been disinvited by the client regime that decides these things. This military-industrial complex front NATO which decides these things, has decided not to invite either China, which lost the second largest number of casualties of dead people, or the successor state to the USSR, without whom I'd currently be speaking to you in German. Because if it were not for the Soviet Red Army, Hitler would have triumphed and his heirs and successors might well still rule all of Europe throughout the entire continent and with their Axis allies, perhaps even across the whole world. So, if the officials in Poland will not remember the contribution that Russia made, we here on the mother of all talk shows have no intention of allowing anyone to forget. War in the Middle East appears this day to have officially begun. In the last few days, Israel has bombed no less than three Arab countries, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Yesterday, the Lebanese resistance hit back in retaliation for the loss of some of their cadre and personnel in a previous Israeli airstrike. Later today, Israel struck back at them, and the whole area is on the edge of all-out war. In the Yemen, the Saudi Air Force directed, officered, 
supplied, armed, trained, and equipped by the United Kingdom and the United States of America has just bombed a prison in Yemen, killing more than 100 people, most of them prisoners in their cells. Just think about that. We'll be talking, of course, about the danger of war in the Persian Gulf, where Iran is still besieged by warships of the coalition of the possibly killing that the United States is assembling as part of its siege on Iran. They work on the assumption that Iran will not try proactively to break out of that siege. I think they are wrong in that assumption. But the main burden of my remarks this evening will be on a different kind of war. In Venezuela, where Venezuela's friends have gathered from all over the world to show their support for the beleaguered socialist government there, which is under effective war, economic war, waged by the United States and again some of its Western allies, particularly this one here in London. Its assets have been frozen and seized, sequestered and even disbursed amongst a self-appointed clique of opposition figures, most of whom are not even household names in their own country, but who now have a checkbook and have billions of dollars in gold assets that have been seized from the Venezuelan state and its legitimate recognized government. But a different kind of war too. The war that's going on here at home in Britain, where just a few weeks until October 31, Halloween, Britain has scarcely ever been more uncertain about its short-term future. Not since 1940, in fact, when Hitler and the fascist hordes were gathered at the Channel ports and only our gallant airmen and sailors were there to stop them coming here. This is a matter of some importance to me. I'm writing a series of historical novels myself about it. It's called Queen's Way, and it's coming your way soon. But 1940 was the last time that Britain faced a, the, the scale of challenge that we currently face in this momentous week coming up in British politics. Unfortunately, whilst in 1940, the men and the measures that were necessary were forthcoming, and thus we played an indispensable part in our prevailing against those challenges then. Here today, neither the men nor the women nor the measures appear to be in place that can secure us from the dangers that lie ahead. There is opposition, of course, to Brexit, and it's that to which I now turn. 
I want to dissect, forgive me, sounding professorial, the difference between form and content. What we've seen in the last few days, led by a melange of liberals and Trotskyites and EU fanatics, has the form of revolution, but its content is utterly, absolutely counter-revolutionary, counter to the interests of the working people of Britain. Indeed, in the service of one of the biggest collection of neoliberal, globalist, finance capital, cartel that has ever been assembled on this earth. Imagine Trotskyites on the march with European Union flags. Liberals on the march in defense of a fortress Europe where racism, even fascism, teams across the continent, where in every parliament in the European Union, except our own, fascists sit, sometimes in considerable number, sometimes even in government. A European Union that locks out anyone sailing across the Mediterranean, refuses even to pick up dead bodies from the sea, people who drown and die in their attempts to enter fortress Europe. People all over the world with goods and food to sell, locked out by the utterly illiberal European Union. It is a grotesque spectacle to see thousands of people, many of them well-meaning people, led by idiots, and I'll come to them, but many of the foot soldiers this week, fine people with good intentions, misled by the donkeys at the head of their army. Talk, loose, slack-jawed, and disastrously counterproductive language. I just looked at a meme carried by some of them on a march up the Mall to Buckingham Palace. Do you know what it said? The Queen is dead, but give her a kick just to be sure. What kind of madness is this? And the opposition Labour Party is indissolubly linked to this movement because all of its leaders are appearing on the platforms at the end of these marches. I've got to tell you something. I've been in politics for 50 years and anybody in Britain who thinks there are votes to be won and not many votes to be lost by cursing, disrespecting the old queen really needs a shock lesson in civics, burning British flags, holding aloft European Union flags, quite apart from the morality of all this. This is electorally disastrous 
for Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, Diane Abbott and the other Labour left-wing leaders that are now indissolubly linked to this phenomenon. These donkeys actually called for a general strike in defence of the European Union. They didn't call for a general strike against the war in Iraq or against the death of 120,000 poor people at the hands of the DWP. They didn't call for a general strike against the annihilation of our industrial base, against the death of the coal industry, the steel industry, the shipbuilding industry, the railway workshops industry, all the butchering of all of our industries. No general strike. Let's have a general strike, they say, because Boris Johnson added five days, five days to the parliamentary holidays to make his Brexit plan more easily achievable. And of course, there is not a single worker in the land who will down tools for Paul Mason, John McDonnell and Diane Abbott. Not a single worker will down tools, unless maybe the reporters on The Guardian or middle-class MPs or parliamentary assistants who want to become MPs. Not a single worker will down tools in a general strike in support of the European Union. What madness is this? March, strike, occupy. That's what they are calling for. Well, they can march. Nobody is going to strike. But they are going to occupy bridges and block roads in defense of the European Union. That's a winner, don't you think? You know, all the thousands of cars backed up, people losing money, can't get to work, can't get to the hospital, can't get to visit their old mother. Oh, well, it's in defense of the European Union, this occupation, this roadblock. What madness is this? I've been in politics a long time. I know a lot of these people very well indeed. And I've marched and spoken on platforms with them countless, innumerable times. But when I see the shadow chancellor of Great Britain sitting on a platform with the Liberal Democrats and the Nationalists, and in the case of Tom Watson, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, joining a high court action with the conservative Remain rebels, with Gina Miller from I don't know which organization is currently funding her myriad court appearances, but from wherever that money is coming. When I see the deputy leader of the Labour Party formally adjoined to that court action to try to wreck a decision made by 17 and a half million people and which coming up to four years later has still not been implemented 
I'm bound to ask myself if it is not, in fact, the intention of many of these people that the Labour Party should lose the upcoming general election. Because upcoming general election in Britain, there is one way or another. Either Parliament this week wrecks Brexit, in which case, count on this, bet your house on this. There will be an immediate general election. And you're not going to like the result of it, many of you. I promise you that, too. Or, if the House of Commons does not wreck Brexit this week, and we Brexit on the 31st, there will be an immediate general election called thereafter. And the Tories will say, we were the people who brought you Brexit as you mandated us to do. All these other people marched up the Mall, besieged Buckingham Palace, blocked your bridges, blocked your roads, insulted the Queen, burnt your flags. Do you want that rabble instead of us? No, I don't want to see Boris Johnson one day longer in government than this. I've been calling for a general election for the last three years since it became apparent that this parliament would not or could not deliver Brexit. My last line on that is this. All these people, led by these donkeys, claimed to be marching for democracy. To stop a coup, they said. But the coup is them. And what they are marching for is the absolute opposite of democracy. It's a march against democracy. It's a march to try and stop the implementation of the largest democratic decision ever taken in these islands. The vote for Brexit was the biggest vote for anything or anybody ever recorded in this whole country's history. And I tell you what, 17.4 million people are not going to allow you to steal their votes. If you want a campaign after we've left for us to rejoin, that's democracy. But stopping Brexit is the very antithesis of democracy. We better get on with our discussion about war in the Middle East because, well, it might even be blazing whilst we're here on air. We're joined by a truly remarkable man, a remarkable campaigner, writer, broadcaster, a man of real courage, an Israeli man, a distinguished Israeli man who is the son of a distinguished Israeli man, the son of an Israeli general, no less. And Miko Pellet is someone like myself, falsely represented in some quarters, deliberately, willfully misrepresented. All we want is peace with justice, isn't it, Miko? Absolutely. We're looking for peace with justice, Absolutely. and we say no justice, 
no peace. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to be Einstein to work that out, really, do you? No, you don't. No, you don't. Quite the opposite, actually, yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank the you. proximate cause of our conversation, though it's always great to see you when you're in London, is that this week the balloon's going up, isn't it? Israel has bombed three countries. The Lebanese have hit back. Israel's hit back at the Lebanese. Where's all this going, do you think? Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it seems that... I mean, this is not nothing... This is, this is really nothing new. This is, this is a system by which Israel you know, operates in the Middle East, in, in the area, which is really like a mafia. Um, they're terrified of a thought of an all-out all war. They're terrified of a thought of actually having to face uh, the Iranian army or the Hezbollah army because they know their army, the Israeli army knows that they're not equipped. They're, I mean, they're equipped, but they're not ready, they're not prepared, they don't have the ability to actually face off a real well-trained, well-motivated army. Um, they've not faced an army in decades, really. They've not fought an army. Um, and so they operate like a mafia, and they go in the shadows, and they, and they bomb here, and they bomb there, um, trying to hit targets that way, and, and hoping to get away with it. Um, but that's that's how they operate. This is this is this. But that is their... presupposes they're not going to be hit back, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure they are. I mean, if they attack Iran, Iran will uh, respond with overwhelming force and uh, without use of nuclear weapons. Uh, Israel will be uh, very badly damaged by that response. Ditto the Lebanese. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and Israel knows that. And I think that's why the way they, the way they pick their target, and I think they're hoping that the, the, the uh, response will not be one that will eventually lead to an all-out war, because Israel does not want that. They know last time they, were, they faced with, uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon... 2006. Uh, 2006. They, they, their forces, the, the, the finest Israeli ground forces, you know, fled back home because they couldn't take it. Uh, even when they face uh, Palestinian fighters in Gaza, when they face them, ground troops face to face, they end up running away. So that's the reality, and they know they're not capable of doing that. But this is the way that they try to maintain their control to show that they are the strongest, toughest bully in the neighborhood. And really, they operate it's like a mafia. This is exactly the way a mafia works. They hit here, they hit there, and they hope that they will get away with it. There was one thing new, though, wasn't there? Uh, they, they actually bombed Iraq. Yeah. As far as I know, they have not done that yeah. before. Yeah. And it has caused a backlash against the presence of U.S. forces and yeah. political yeah. operators uh, there. Why did they do that? Well, the, somebody had some bit of information that it was a good target and that they, and they, again, I think they knew very well that there was not going to be any, there won't be any serious consequences to prevent it. 
um, and the, 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 this uh, understanding that there, that there is a need to always prove that we are the toughest, we meaning Israel, is the meanest, toughest bully in the neighborhood, has been, you know, this has been the doctrine for decades, that we always have to maintain this upper hand, we always have to show that we can reach them where they, where they feel safe and so forth, and that's, that's, that's what they're doing. And one hopes, of course, that the Iranians and the Lebanese, Hezbollah, will, will, will have the kind of discipline so that we do not end up in an all-out war, because nobody, of course, wants that. Uh, but they're battle-hardened now, uh, the Lebanese resistance yeah. and the Syrian army. Yeah. They've been fighting now for years, yeah. and they have prevailed yeah. against 100,000 or more uh, takfiri Islamist fanatics who were sent into the country to try and topple the regime and take over. Uh, Hezbollah were a formidable enemy in 2006. Mm -hmm. They're a much more formidable enemy yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, and so one wonders at the political class in your country that thinks they can go on forever doing uh, the kind of things that you describe without provoking yeah. an actual war. Yeah, that is their hope, and that is exactly what that, this is exactly what they build on. And again, people forget. I mean, we look at the Israeli army. It's really no more than a large terrorist organization. I mean, they look good, they've got the uniforms, the generals are young and they look tough, but they have absolutely no battle experience and they haven't had battle experience against a military force for many, many decades. Since, well, 82 since, maybe? Since, since, well, since no, an 70s, army, 73. 73. I mean, that's a very, very long yeah, time ago. Yeah. I mean, it's and the it's grandchildren 70. of the, those soldiers. Yes, these, the, these, the, these, uh, these people, the, the generals today were maybe, maybe young soldiers or maybe not even that, recruits uh, in those days. Um, and their entire career was built on shooting young Palestinian children with rocks. This is their entire military career. So they feel tough because they've got all the hardware, they've got the best, the best equipment, they've got the most, the high, you know, the, 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 in terms of technology, they can outdo everybody. And they think that by going out there and doing what they call these targeted uh, bombings, um, that they can maintain their position as, again, as the toughest bully in the neighborhood. I don't think they're the toughest bully in the neighborhood. I don't think anybody believes that. And now it's really this question on who's going to make the decision whether or not this is going to lead to an all-out war or it will continue to be this kind of a targeted, targeted bombing on both sides. Is this electioneering uh, by Netanyahu? Without any doubt. Without any doubt. Netanyahu's only, only objective now is to get the votes of the very, very, very most extreme right-wing voters. If they vote for him instead of voting for their own political parties, then he will have the two or three extra seats in the Knesset that he needs in order to maintain his, his position as prime minister. That's all he does. So that's why he is um, he did not let two American congresswomen into the United into the into Israel. This is why he bombed he destroyed homes in Palestinian territories that are in Pal you know Palestinian Authority territory because they said they were a threat to Jerusalem. You know destroying homes of, of, of families. Um, he's doing everything he possibly can to show that he is the farthest uh, to the right that anybody e could even vote though for. he isn't because actually isn't one of the most depressing things that the the rivals yeah. are worse than him well the rivals claim that they'll be worse than him and he's got to prove to the voters that they're not <laughs> so it's a rush to the right it's a rush it's a mad mad rush to the right and really when you think of it 
right of Netanyahu. I mean, what could that possibly mean? It's Genghis horrifying. Khan on horseback. Exactly. It's horrifying. So if he can get those votes, uh, he he has you know he has another long term in office, and he'll probably never. He's already the longest serving, yeah. Yes, he is. Um, last elections, he came neck to neck, so that he didn't like that. Although he won many more votes than than the Likud won in, in a very long time. So if he can get these votes, in order to do that, he's got to show that he's tough. He's got to show that he's, you know, protecting us. He's got to show that he's building and he's promising, which he just did, by the way, to annex Area C of the West Bank, which is the majority of the West Bank, and declare Israeli sovereignty there. And then again, prevent Palestinians from building and living there. He's got to show that he's destroying homes. He's got to show that he's Judaizing Jerusalem and Judaizing the northern uh, Galilee. He's got to show all these things, and that he's bombing and bombing uh, Iran and bombing the, the Hezbollah and bombing terrorists. This is what he's got to show in order to get these votes, and he will stop at nothing to get the votes. When I used to, as I used to regularly uh, visit Tel Aviv, live there even, I lived for some weeks in the Shankin uh, area in Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. there were lots of Israelis like you. Uh, I get the feeling there's not quite so many now. Yeah. Is that a fact? Yeah, it is a fact. I think, I think what happened was Israelis who are on the left had to choose because to be a Zionist left is an oxymoron. Zionist is a racist, uh, settler colonial ideology. Left means le left values, values that are to mm. the left, you know, socialism and, and injustice mm. and equality and so forth. And it's, there came a point where people had to choose. Are you Zionist or are you left? Are you pro-justice? Do you believe that people have a right to live even if they are Palestinians in this country? Uh, or not. And the vast majority of the people came down on being Zionist. They decided they wanted to be Zionist, that they have a right to be Zionist, and it was a much easier choice. And there are very, very few who said, no, we're going to give up on the Zionism because it is wrong. There's no way to justify what the Zionists have done over the last hundred years in Palestine. And we, the call for justice comes first. And left-leaning values should, should come first before Zionism. And so did such people, uh, many, um, because many of them that I know, did effectively left the country. They may go back now and again, but they effectively could no longer live there. Many left, many just became silent. Uh, and again, uh, depending on what side they chose, that, that, that determined what they decided to do with mm. themselves. But I, you know, I, I communicate with people who call themselves Zionist left, and I say, you cannot be a Zionist left. You're living in, what kind of a world are you living in that you can be both Zionist and left? You can be both racist and call for, for, for uh, left values. It doesn't make any sense. Tell us about that, because you're, you're American as well as Israeli. Uh, the banning of three members of the U.S. Congress, yeah. which gives, I don't know, you'll tell me exactly the amount, but it's... It's uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to, I think, 800 million, something of that order. 3.8 billion. What? 3.8 billion. My goodness, I'm every out year. 3.8 billion, billion dollars a year, a year yeah. from American taxpayers yeah. to Israel. Mm. And then you ban three elected members yeah. of that country's parliament. Yeah. You know, in most places, a client state like Israel is, i.e., with a cap in hand and receiving that amount in your cap, you wouldn't dream of doing that. Yeah. You'd say, well, we'll have to just roll with this. We'll try and make their visit as uh, harmless as possible, but if, they, if we sustain any damage on this, we'll have to just swallow that because the money and the political relationship is worth more than that. Again, was 
Was there any opposition in Israel to that decision and how has it gone down in the US? Well, Israel was faced with two bad choices, which I think is a very good thing. This whole idea of, of a congressional delegation led by two Muslim uh, members of Congress, women, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, one Palestinian, one Somali, uh, was an excellent idea. Strategically, it was brilliant because Israel could not win. Now, the lesser, of the, the, the lesser of the two evils would have been to let them in, let them do the tour. They were going to meet with the Palestinian Authority. They were going to see the West Bank. They would have gone back to the U.S. and told the world what the world already knows, that there's an apartheid regime in the West Bank, and so on and so forth. Fine. This is, this is, we're talking about election campaigning now. Netanyahu needs to show that he is very strong, that he will not let the enemies of Israel come in, that they are... Now, these, these members of Congress, by the way, came out in support of the call to boycott Israel, the call for BDS. Israeli law, calls, according to Israeli law, people who support BDS should be prevented from entering the country because they're enemies of the state. So what do you do when these are members of the United States House of Representatives? This is a tough, tough choice. And they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and in the end they came down on not allowing them to come in, which I think it created irreparable damage for Israel. Well, I mean, for, for those damage. of us who want uh, to see change, uh, in a way, we, we, we should be grateful that they made Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, there's a caller uh, in California on this BDS point. Do you mind taking the sure. call? Is it Sanchez? Yes. Uh, from Southern California, I wish you both a uh, good evening. Good evening. Uh, Thank you for calling. Yes. Uh, Miko and George, um, I've, I've been an activist and supported the Palestinian movement for several years. Uh, I was also part of the very successful Block the Boat Los Angeles movement here several years ago. Yeah. I've been a member of groups here in Southern California, which at best at this point are only interested in holding meetings. Considering the tensions in the Middle East at this very moment and what has been going on with the apartheid state of Israel for so long, I am feeling at best right now both frustrated and helpless. What can we do here on the west coast of, of the United States or in the United States in general do when the BDS movement is being demonized by our politicians who are bought and sold by the Netanyahu uh, government? We all know that that's happening through APAC. What can we do as average Americans at this point? Because I am feeling, even though I'm empowered, I've created videos which are sitting on YouTube, which nobody watches. What can we do well, look, to uh, help? Yeah, uh, Miko will uh, answer substantively as he knows uh, better uh, what's going on in the U.S. But I wouldn't disrespect people who organize meetings. First of all, Meetings are important. It's how we uh, deepen our uh, knowledge. It's how we uh, expand our networks and how our subsequent campaigning can gain more uh, traction. So you shouldn't be too frustrated just because you get a notice for another meeting. There's an old Soviet joke uh, of the man uh, who sees the party's secretary running after him in the street and he says, uh, Comrade, you missed the last meeting. And the citizen answered, if I'd known it was the last meeting, I would have gone. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I know that life can seem uh, interminable at meetings, but I, I wouldn't diss them uh, altogether. And by the way, the videos you've got sitting up on YouTube will be seen by many people after your appearance here on the mother of all talk shows tonight. 
-hmm. And we'll ask you before we let you go how people can uh, find them. I'm hoping Great. that they're uh, honest and decent uh, because I'm, I, I oughtn't to endorse them before I've seen them myself. Miko, uh, what's the answer to Sanchez's question? Well, send you know, t send me those videos too on on Facebook or on Messenger or somehow, and, and I'll take a look and I'll be happy to share them too. Um, once I've watched them, once was, I've seen yeah, them. What, what can but the frustration, do look, the frustration, yeah, the frustration is is very well justified, and and success is uh, sadly enough measured by very small things. However. Like I said, this story with the two members of Congress, this was, this was irreparable damage for Israel. The, the, you know, members of the Democratic Party, ma you know, major figures within the Democratic Party came out, came out and spoke against Israel. Things they haven't said when Israel bombed Gaza and killed children, they didn't say when, mm -hmm. when this, as, as they did this time. So this, this was, I think, a major victory. This, this is very, very important. Forward, this is yeah. a very big step forward. Um, that major figures in the Democratic Party speak up against Israel, and there's a sense of shock, there's a sense of frustration in America that their own members of Congress, just because they disagree with Israeli policies, are not permitted to enter. It's absolutely absurd. So that was a very good thing, I think, strategically, and, and, and I think it was very, very important. Um, now, there is a bill in Congress right now, uh, No Way to Treat a Child. Uh, which calls for, which was initiated by Betty McCollum and needs a lot of support. It needs you need to call your Congress member, your, your representatives, and make sure that they support this bill. Um, that they, it's, it's a bill that basically talks about the treatment of Palestinian children by the Israeli authorities and that the American uh, administration needs to make sure that American funds don't go to this. And they actually outline that, that treatment, the specific treatment, when children are arrested and detained. Uh, make sure that your member of Congress, that your members of Congress, of your friends and neighbors and so forth, know that you demand that they support that. Um, there's a bill that was initiated by uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, which is the, the right to boycott, that Americans should have the right to boycott. It doesn't mention It seems Palestine. incredible you have to legislate for that, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it seems incredible. But yeah. what has happened... I have to ask Congress for permission not to yeah. buy somebody's products. Yeah. It's because, kind of insanity, that. Exactly, because what happened was the campaign to delegitimize BDS has gone so far that now Americans are being threatened that if they do boycott Israel, they will be penalized. And this goes for businesses and individuals and government employees and so forth. So there is a bill, and make sure that your members of Congress, that your representatives, your family representatives, people that you know in your circle, people come to these meetings, find out who the representatives and make sure that you demand that they... Uh, that they vote, that they support uh, this bill. These are very, very important things. And I think the, the, the goal should be to create the environment in the United States where the members of the House of Representatives and the senators understand that if they support Israel, they will not get away with it. That if they support Israel today, they'll be remembered as the people who called Nelson Mandela terrorist and opposed uh, fighting against apartheid mm, in South Africa. This is the exact same thing. And they will be remembered just like those other people are remembered. Only it's easier today because we have social media and we have everything It is. Recorded. It's much easier uh, today. Sanchez, before I let you go, let me try and cheer you up. Forty years ago this year, I successfully twinned my city of Dundee in Scotland with the Palestinian city of Nablus. It turned my life upside down. I came under such unrelenting attack from the pro-Israel lobby in Britain. You would not believe it. I could show you my scars. The entire board of deputies of British Jews came to our city dressed in 
concentration camp, Auschwitz, uh, hideous uh, uniforms, death camps, the uniforms of the death camps, and sat outside our city hall to protest our twinning with a Palestinian town. A department store in town, Goldberg's, closed down, made 60 people redundant and blamed our twinning. Do you know that the twinning now of a British city with a Palestinian town or city wouldn't even make the news? It's an everyday mm -hmm. occurrence. It wouldn't even make the news. Last word to you. Well, okay. Let me let, let me offer you my uh, YouTube channel, but you're going to have to dig deep because there's several videos, but now they're several years old. One in particular, if you can uh, you can watch this, uh, it's called Block the Boat, Los Angeles, a solidarity story. Okay. And then there's another video that Just I would one like more. to bring to your attention. More. Yeah. Okay, one more, because this one, if you're familiar with Canary Mission, this one was identified on their, when they used to carry a video page. So one of my videos made their uh, organization's page. It's called Gaza Simplified, Past, Present, and Future. And this is just basically a meeting informing and educating people that don't understand the okay. situation in Gaza. That's all it okay. was. Okay, okay. So well, uh, I'll tell you what, you, you've done more in the last five minutes than any number of meetings you've attended in the last couple of years. Anyway, thanks, Sanchez, in Southern California. Well, of course, there still is a place, Miko, called Palestine, despite all the efforts. Uh, as you know, I was, uh, for a very long time, more than half my life, uh, very close to President Arafat, and he used to have a saying, it wasn't very politically correct, but he, he used to say, we are not the Red Indians. We're not going into the museum. They have at least achieved that, the Palestinians, haven't they? they? They haven't gone into the museum. Despite all efforts to wipe the name Palestine off the map and off every <clears throat> uh, form, every kind of officialdom, everybody in their heart knows that what happened to the Palestinians has to be, uh, has to be atoned for, has to be accounted for has to be redressed. Yes. You know, uh, Professor Nur Masalha from SOAS here, Palestinian professor, just came out with a book called Palestine, a 4,000-year history. And one of the things he shows is how that piece of land has been consistently called Palestine or Palestine going back all the way to the Bronze Age until one day in 1948 it became Israel. Mm. And suddenly the narrative has changed completely and the, the, the the narrative that calls the country Israel has become so strong that educated people, most people, still think that that piece of land has been called Israel for thousands of years and then suddenly became, it became Palestine. So I would recommend people read that book. The reality is that Palestine has been a consistently uh, Palestinian and we have to look at this day in 1948 and say, well, what happened and why do we accept suddenly that the name has changed and the country suddenly became this new thing? So I call on people to look back at their values and say, well, let's take a look. If we accept racism, settler colonialism, ethnic cleansing, and genocide, then we must call the country Israel. 
And if we call the country Israel, we're legitimizing all of these things. And if our values tell us that that's right, then that's right. If we oppose racism and apartheid and the ethnic cleansing and so forth, if we believe in justice and freedom, then we must continue to call the entire country Palestine as the indigenous people of the country call it. So it's all Palestine from the river to the sea, the Nakab in the south and, and, and the Galilee in the north and Jerusalem and everything in between. If our values, again, point us in the direction of justice and freedom and democracy. Now, we have to also remember, and you, I'm sure you know this, 30, 40 years ago, Palestinians in the Galilee, in the Nakab Desert, who have Israeli citizenship, many of them did call themselves Israeli Arabs. Mm, mm. Today, you're not going to hear that. You're going to no. see Palestinian flags in Yaffa. You see Palestinian flags in the Nakab Desert. People call themselves Palestinians. Everybody, activists on the ground throughout the entire country, talk about a single goal, which is freeing all of Palestine, creating a real democracy with equal rights from the river to the sea. This is the only thing that's discussed. This is the only thing that people realize is realistic. So not only are the Palestinians not going into museums, there's an, a huge and strong and, and, and um, revival of Palestinian nationalism and recognition of their own uh, right to the country, to the culture, to the history. Amen. Here's Jennifer in Lancashire in England. She's got a question. Um, Jennifer. Yeah. Hello, George. I, I'm a Hi. great fan of yours. I, I'm you. stalking you from previous programs. Uh, I'm a first-time caller. Okay. And uh, may you live forever, George, for Thank the you. wonderful job that you do. Pray for me. Thank you. Uh, uh, George, um, I, well, I wanted to ask about uh, the close relationship between America and Israel. I've heard an expression uh, that we're two nations, one heart. Um, and uh, there seems to be, from what I can understand from, from looking at the American news, uh, that there's uh, cross-party support uh, from both uh, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it seems to be there are very lone voices that uh, are not supporting Israel. Um, and uh, Trump's administration, whilst uh, campaigning, uh, was all about not being interventionist, not uh, being involved uh, in other people's countries, but in fact has shown itself to be uh, staunchly Zionist. And of course, he's got people in his administration, Kushner uh, and, and Abrams and, and Bolton and Pompeo, all these people who represent very much a, a very Zionist perspective. Let me stop you just because of the hour, uh, and it was an excellent call. Don't be a stranger. Uh, make sure you call regularly. Miko, she has a, a, a point. It's beginning to change, isn't it? But it is remarkable, the solidity uh, of support for Israel in United States politics. I don't know what it's like down amongst the public, public opinion. But, you know, given all the things that need spending on in the United States, even the money alone, you would think, would cause people to uh, say, what did you say it was, 3.8 billion? 
3.8 billion dollars, that's a lot of dollars. Uh, Even quite apart from all political questions, you'd think a movement would arise in the United States that said, I want that spent in my state on crumbling infrastructure and so on. Why is it that Israel is so strong in the US political system? I think there's two things. One, the, the, the shared values, the one heart, uh, that's a big part of it. Both countries were, were built on genocide, on ethnic cleansing. America was built on slavery. Israel is built on the apartheid regime and, 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 and using Palestinians as cheap labor. So, I mean, that, those are very strong shared values. You know, this is, wow. this is really the, the, what, what the, the, these are the values that they share. And they pretend that, that they're democratic, which, of course, they're not. Uh, and the other thing is we have to remember that the lobby, the Zionist lobby, in the United States has, or not only in the United States, here in Britain too and other parts of, of the West, has been very effective, very smart, and very powerful for almost 100 years. You know? So they're very, very good at this. And so the, the image that Americans get is that these poor, poor Jews, helpless Jews being attacked by, by Arabs, being attacked by these terrible terrorists, you know, and they just came out of the Holocaust and they all just came out of the pogroms. And, you know, it's their country because, you know, the Bible says so. You know, it's very superficial but it's this, and very shallow, but this is the narrative. This is the story. And therefore, how could we possibly not support this poor country with our dollars? Now, at the same time, if you say what you just said, why don't we use this money to build our crumbling schools? Why don't we use this money in their city? Why don't we use this money to support, if it's foreign aid, let's give foreign aid to countries who need foreign aid. Israel is a rich country. Israel doesn't need foreign aid, right? Why don't we give it to countries who do need foreign aid? If you say that, immediately you're labeled anti-Semitic. And that is exactly part of the campaign of the Israeli, of the Zionist lobby, is to make sure they target anyone who expresses any kind of mm. opposition anyone who dares to, to poke a hole in this wall of pro-Israelism and that's it. They're wiped off and they are called anti-Semitic and that's the end of their career. Yeah, I'm, I had so a friend, very uh, a legislator, a minister actually in Israel, Shulamit Aloni. I don't mm. know if you ever knew her. Of course. But uh, her statement is quite famous now on the internet but in fact she said it to me uh, 30 years ago it's a trick, she said. We always use it. Uh, we, uh, we react to any support for the Palestinians, any criticism of Israel by branding people anti-Semitic. That must be a wasting asset, that tactic now, don't you think? Uh, because on the principle that if you call everybody an anti-Semite, uh, first of all, it becomes less believable, and secondly, it's very, very dangerous because there are anti-Semites. There are real anti-Semites, people who wish harm on Jews because they're Jews. The boy who cried wolf is a parable for a reason. Yeah. Am I right? Well, it still works. I mean, it works, and people are afraid to be labeled anti-Semitic. People do not want to end up like uh, like Chris Williamson and, and like others who, 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 for absolutely no reason whatsoever, no justification at all, are suddenly called anti-Semitic. Yeah. And this happens in America. He's effectively, his political career is at an end. Yeah, for, 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 and for nothing, you know, only because of, you know, the context of Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party and so forth, and the support for justice everywhere, including Palestine. Um, it's very effective. It's proving very effective. You've got the Board of Deputies here, which is like, like you described. They, 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 again, they work like a mafia. You've got the Israeli lobby and various branches of the Israeli lobby, the Jewish Federation and others that operate in the United States, the Anti-Defamation League, 
who is really a racist organization that his only their only purpose is defamation of others um, and they are they work like a mafia they intimidate people and so people are afraid so if mm. you do dare to say not only do you not have to say that you support Palestinian rights it's enough that you say that you question the absolute support for Israel to already be labeled anti-Semitic. And that's why American politicians are so afraid. It's like a tax. You have to support Israel whether you know where it exists. You might not even know where it is on the map, but you have to support it if you want a career in politics. It's been fantastic talking to you. I wish we could talk Thank all you. night. Miko Peled, a real Pleasure. Israeli hero. And I mean that absolutely sincerely. Let me read uh, one or two of the uh, tweets and messages that have come in. Just as uh, Adam takes his uh, seat. Welcome, Adam, as Good always. Good to be here. Uh, a tweet from hashtag, not hashtag, at by murderers. Not sure. That's a particularly pleasant title. As a fellow lefty, I'd like to know why you're so adamant that leaving the European Union is the best thing for Britain. Sorry, mate, that decision has already been made. I'm really not going to re engage a debate about whether or not we Brexit. That decision has already been made. Ad nauseum, I have discussed this. Try Google, try YouTube. Uh, the way we are headed, though, uh, they say, uh, the, the way we're headed to leave will cause medicine shortages. How can this help in the long run? Where do you think we are, Wagadugu or London? Do you think this is Burkina Faso or Britain? Why would we have medicine shortages? We make medicine. We export medicine. We have money to buy medicine that we don't make. And many willing sellers. Why have you, as a fellow lefty, fallen hook, line and sinker for this project fear rubbish what makes you think that this kind of nonsense has any more credibility than for example the campaign that jeremy corbyn is a racist and an anti-semite don't you know actually that these arguments come from many of the same actors and i mean actors why have you fallen for this guff when you don't fall for the other guff. Why are you so content to be marching to the orders, to the drumbeat of Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell, John Major, the CBI, the banks, Goldman Sachs, all the big international finance capital institutions. Why are you as a lefty marching to this stupid Drumbeat, Adam, help me. God help me. <laughs> well, it, it's, it, it's extraordinary to see this because it's as though people only have a memory that goes back a few years or even a few months. In 1975, arguably the strongest voice in all of Britain to Brexit, the term wasn't invented, but the concept certainly was, was Tony Benn. Um, the, Enoch Powell, who had already left the Tories by then, was a comparatively isolated voice on the right of British politics, the more vehement 
and the more amplified arguments for leaving what was then known as the EEC was from the left. So it's as someone who's firmly in the center uh, and who's never been a part of a political party, I'm watching with shock that the so-called left is self-identified as everything is these days. Uh, they're essentially worshipping the golden calf of Angela Merkel and of uh, Jean-Claude Jean Juncker and Ursula van der Leyen. It's the unspeakable in pursuit of the unpronounceable. Totally and fantastic line. Write that down, Chris. <laughs> write that down. I wish I'd said that. You will. I will. You will. I will. <laughs> that is a totally fantastic summary. That is exactly it. The golden calf of Angela Merkel. Some gold, some calf, as Mr <laughs> Indeed. Churchill Indeed. might put it. The idea that this parade that you just uh, adumbrated there uh, is somehow a banner that left-wing people should follow. I mean, on these protests this week, uh, which were decently attended, but they were not massive, they were not millions, it no. wasn't a revolution, no bridges were blocked, no roads were blocked, and nobody went on strike. Absolutely nobody The Isles of Waitrose were sufficiently filled. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but they were marching, and above them were flattering, fluttering the blue and gold flag of a capitalist club. If Mr. Ben was alive today, what do you think he'd say, Mr. Tweeter? to that nonsense that you've just said? Let me tell you, as someone who was with him, at his side, from the 1970s, from 1975, until his funeral, he'd say, I wish I could mimic his accent, but it's incomparable. Can we not make medicines? Have we, who built ships of steel and sailed them across the seven seas, laden with the world's manufacturers, not produce medicine? You think we need Brussels to give us medicine? What madness is this? Say something, Adam, on the medicines, will you? Well, since we're talking about it in terms of left and right, in 75, there's an image which burns my eyes, and I'm sure it stings yours quite heavily, of Margaret Thatcher standing by her nemesis, Ted Heath. And not only was it grotesque in terms of their unusual agreement on an issue, they, weren't even, they, weren't, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't even on speaking terms, which was a shame, because he was single at the time, as he was for many, <laughs> many years. But she was wearing this jumper that was in blazoned with every flag of what was then the EEC and these people who well maybe privately they quite like Mrs Thatcher but in public they probably don't they probably like Morrissey or the old Morrissey before he supported Brexit uh, but these people it's a political and historical incongruity that one could only accept if one foregoes any relationship to the fundamentals of democracy, of parliamentary history, of British history, of European history, and indeed of the political history that has caused so much friction between Britain and the continent for the last 40 plus years. One has to essentially lobotomize the thinking part of the brain and just go on autopilot. I would say it's like artificial intelligence, but artificial intelligence is rather better rather than that. Rather smarter I think. than that. Uh, can you get me a caller, Chris? There must be callers on this subject. Thanks. Now, 
let me commend to you a video not by Mr. Ben, although he was present and speaking, but the video of a speech by another friend of mine, the late and great Peter Shaw. Oh, yes. At the Oxford Union on the eve of the referendum in 1975. It's only seven minutes long. And if it doesn't, raise the hair on the back of your neck. If it doesn't energize you with a new belief in what our people are capable of, have been, are, and will be capable of doing, making, creating, then I'll be surprised, as you're a fellow lefty. Let's take a call from Liverpool. Pap. Pap, Pap welcome. Yeah, hi, George. Hi, um, hi. I've, I've watched this week, and I just can't believe what an own goal the so-called left have actually scored. Uh, we have, we're using political rhetoric that is so easy to defeat, um, and I just don't understand what Labour is doing right now. Well, uh, to be fair, uh, it's not officially Labour, but thanks to the omnipresence of Macdonald and Abbott and Starmer and others, Watson in particular because he's adjoined to the Gina Miller legal case, it is firmly stamping Labour as an anti-national party. Yes. yes and there is, no, there is no political profit in so being. Uh, can, can that, is that not obvious to everybody? An anti-national party, a party that burns the flag, a party that disrespects the Queen. How do you expect to win an election if these are the stamps on your head? Am I right, Pap? Yeah, well, I think we're doing the Tories' work for them. This yeah, is definitely. Sort of we definitely. need floaters, and we're not going to get them with this sort of rhetoric, this sort of action, um, and particularly just uh, going against a, a direct democratic result that our representative uh, parliament has failed to deliver on. Well, that's exactly the point, uh, isn't it, Adam, that it's parliament. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. That is attempting the coup. It is Parliament which wants that extra five days. I'm going to keep reminding you of this. Yes. Parliament has not been suspended. Parliament has not been closed. Parliament has not been abolished. Parliament is having a five-day longer holiday. Five days. It's because yep. Parliament wants to use those five days as they've used the last three years 
to defy democracy. Quite so. To break democracy. Am I right? Quite so. And there's been a lot of talk about how, from a legal and constitutional point, referenda in Britain are non-binding because only Parliament can overrule a previous Parliament. Not only do I accept that, but I like it. I also like referenda. I think that Britain needs a lot more. And here's why I hold that view that I do. In a system like Switzerland, in a system like parts of the United States, where referenda are legally binding, a legislature, a Parliament, only needs to rubber stamp the results of the legally binding referendum in the same way a civil servant would execute a task without putting one's own ethical and moral judgments into it, where in a system like Britain it's a fundamental issue of trust. And it is that trust which, since Magna Carta, has built this British constitution, which I love very much. Now, Parliament has what I believe is an ethical and moral duty to say the trust shall not be abrogated. This trust is indivisible, and if we can't bring ourselves to implement this referendum, we shall stand down, call a by-election, and let the people have a direct say. But if we are in that chamber, it is a matter of trust. And this, to me, is an issue of constitutionality, because without trust and without ethics, no constitution, written or unwritten, can stand. And that's why this parliament are a contemptuous lot. Speaking of parliament, and of very controversial figure to come out of one, I'm going to quote Oliver Cromwell. He once said to his enemies, to hell or Connaught. Well, I say to this scurvy crew, to borrow one of your phrases, to hell or Brussels, because if they go to one of those two places, they'll be doing a damn sight better than staying in Westminster and thwarting... For all the good that they're doing in the, go in, in the name of God, go. Pat, last word to you. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I hope that, that somehow uh, UK Labour get in, but even within the EU, most of Jeremy pa uh, Corbyn's pol policy platform is just not achievable. So I, I, I still, I'm, I'm just amazed at the rhetoric. Okay, look, uh, thanks, uh, thanks very much for that call. Let's go to Chris in Milton Keynes. Chris, welcome. George, good evening. Good it's evening, sir. To... Yeah, good evening. Um, I was kind of wondering, um, I, I've, I've run a small business, many of my friends do, many people in this country do. I, I have many friends on low income. Um, and I was just wondering, this Brexit, it seems practically impossible to gain any, any information as to what's going to happen to people like us. Well, they're spending but millions uh, on, uh, on information. Have you, you've tried all the hotlines and so on and websites that have been set up? I know a lot of money has been spent on educating people like us, but I don't seem to have seen this information. Well, uh, I don't have it immediately to hand, but uh, if you, I think, uh, Google uh, Her Majesty's Government's information on Brexit, you'll see plenty, a plethora uh, of, uh, of information as to how it might affect your small business. So Boris and the Eaton boys have taken over. Uh, are us poor people going to be poorer? Well, you've got a small business, so you, I'm not sure we can describe you as uh, one of the poor people. Uh, but uh, I hope myself, personally, it's not the collective view of this show, uh, that Boris Johnson will be voted out of government. I'll What's certainly... I'll ce hold on. I'll certainly be voting against him. But I'll tell you, if you want rid of Boris Johnson, the worst way to do it, the worst way to do it, is to block Brexit. If you want rid of Boris Johnson, you want to get Brexit behind you. 
and then normal politics can resume in this country. Labour versus Conservative politics, working class versus ruling class politics, left-wing politics versus right-wing politics. But if you want to keep Brexit as the poison coursing through the body politic, carry on uh, as you are. Uh, we've got another call from Tony in Liverpool, always worth hearing. Tony, welcome. Tony, are you there? Good evening, George. How are you, my friend? Hello, Adam. Nice to Hi, hear Tony. from you again, Tony. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's a great subject, George. I think Jeremy would be making a huge mistake because you know, I know Adam knows five million Labour voters uh, actually voted for Brexit. Um, yep. So if Jeremy Corbyn thinks he can win an election and lose a huge rump of that five lose million... Lose five million votes, yeah. Well, he could certainly lose a large rump of that. He doesn't even need to lose the five million. No, that's a right. Large rump of it. That's right. And just before you go things... on, before you go on, Tony, let me just yeah, sure. uh, make a point that buttresses yours. 65% of all Labour-held constituencies voted to leave. Seven out of eight, seven-eighths of Labour's top target seats that it needs to win to become the next government voted leave. In both cases, many times by huge margins, including some of the largest margins in the country. I mean, as the Americans say, do the math. If you want to win the election, why did you allow yourself to become branded as the anti-Brexit party? Go on, Tone. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You're basically doing Boris Johnson's work for him. And let, let's bear in mind, 498 MPs voted in the House of Commons to trigger Article 50. Yeah. Em embedded in that legislation, because it became obviously legislation, it's passed through the House, goes to the Lords, back to the House, and then it goes for royal assent. Now, we're now being told that Brexit voters didn't know what they were voting for. And now we're also being told that the 498 MPs who triggered Article 50, they didn't know that embedded in that legislation, it states clearly, we leave with or without a negotiated deal at the end of the Article 50 process, yeah. which is obviously now after the, the two or three delays is now October the 31st. That is the end of the um, Article 50 process. Absolutely. And, and 498 MPs voted to trigger it. Did they know what they were voting for or did they Mo not? Moreover... 80% or more of the MPs elected in 2017, i.e. one year after the referendum, were elected on a promise to respect the result of the referendum. Now, that's what you call democracy. If you got elected to Parliament, as Yvette Cooper and Ed Miliband and many others did, and they're on video saying it, we will respect the result of the referendum. It would be disastrous, they said, to be seen to be blocking the result of the referendum. And yet, from the day and hour, they have not stopped trying to break it, trying to, to, to stop it. Last word, Adam. 
Well, if you want a lesson in bad political tactics and bad political strategy, one only needs to look at what the Labour Party is doing now. They're associating themselves with the most repugnant, the most vicious, the most vulgar, the most obscene elements within the British body politic of the whole Brexit you the phenomenon. Uh, and indeed, the you merchant know. bankers, which means something different in East London than it does in <laughs> East New York. But but the overall conclusion is the same in both instances. The city of London, Frankfurt, the big German businesses, the big French businesses, the corrupt agriculturalists of the continent, it you couldn't get a worse group of people to align yourselves with. And it's going to be, right now, who wins the next general election is really up to two men. One of those men is Boris Johnson, the other man is Nigel Farage, because the only thing that could prevent a fairly comfortable Tory majority at the next election, whether it comes on the uh, before the 31st of October or just after, is whether the Brexit party believe that Boris Johnson is being insufficiently pro-Brexit. If he goes in and says, I'm presenting to Parliament a watered-down version of the Theresa May Treaty, so essentially her treaty minus the backstop, then Farage will bring out his big guns and the Brexit party may end up uh, resulting in a hung parliament in terms of when they contest that election. But as Nigel Farage has said, as I've been predicting on this show for weeks now, he's offering Boris a coupon-style election uh, from of the 1918 variety, whereby if Boris is pledged to deliver what Nigel Farage deems to be a proper Brexit, they will engage in some sort of electoral pact. It will be a landslide. And Corbyn only has himself to blame if we're talking about tactics, because if Corbyn said we are the left Brexit party and they are the right Brexit party, it would have been a proper two-horse race. Instead, it's really the whole thing but, is but, about Johnson and but Farage. He, he couldn't do that because he's surrounded by a fifth column, mm. now joined by his former closest allies. And Diane Abbott, could that, you get yes. any closer? Uh, <laughs> John McDonnell, could you get any closer? Well, Diane's been a bit closer. <laughs> uh, they are now joined to the fifth column. Yes. So Corbyn is, in fact, a prisoner of these people. Now, you could, and I would, and you certainly would, and have, uh, you'd say, well, how did he allow himself to get into that situation? What could he have done? in the last four years to break out of that situation. I certainly would argue that. Let me put that. it this way. Nelson Mandela was able to lead the ANC from an actual prison better than Corbyn's able to lead his party from this metaphorical prison which you just described. So I have zero sympathy uh, for, for this kind of political weakness. Uh, to quote Harry Truman, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Tony, thanks for the call. Now, I, I'm going to switch uh, my direction. Uh, to Latin America, where in Venezuela this week uh, there has been a mass of international solidarity arrivals. The arrivals hall at Caracas has been extremely busy because all kinds of people from all over the world who wish to see the Chavez experiment in Venezuela, an experiment that has brought the people a level of sovereignty and independence they never before enjoyed and has distributed the wealth of Venezuela to places and people 
that never would have tasted it before, there's a lot of people want that to succeed. And in a way, the more Donald Trump and Elliot Abrams and John Bolton want to destroy it, the more people around the world want to save it. It's kind of obvious. Now, one of the British visitors, I don't know how many there were, but when I saw that she was one of them, there was nobody else I wanted to interview. Jyoti Brar is the vice president of uh, the Communist Party in Britain. She's an outstanding person. I know her well and all her family also well. Uh, she traveled with me all the way to Gaza from London in the great convoy that broke the siege on Gaza. A truly outstanding person, and I'm hoping she's on the line now. Georgie, are you there? I'm there, George. Can you hear me okay? Fantastic. Better than I expected, right. I must say. Lines, <laughs> lines to Venezuela uh, have not yet been degraded. <laughs> That's for sure. Tell us what you're doing there first, George. Cross your fingers. Yeah. Tell us what you're doing there. Okay. So we came out uh, at the invitation of the... Um, PSUV, which is the party that's in, in power at the moment in Venezuela. They are very strong in the trade unions, and they were very keen to organize a conference of trade unionists and supporters from all over the world uh, in order to try and coordinate the support that they know is out there, uh, but which can be sometimes quite disparate. So we have been involved in the first international conference of workers from around the world in solidarity with Venezuela to discuss what we can do and how we can coordinate our efforts globally. And uh, where are the people coming from in terms of parts of the world, countries? So a huge representation, as you might imagine, from the Caribbean, from Central America, from South America. There were a few people from North America. There were some people from Europe, some people from Africa, uh, pretty much the whole world represented. Excellent. Now, uh, have you... Uh, met any of the leadership in Venezuela yet? We have, yes. We were very lucky to uh, have a, a rally with President Maduro was there. Um, the first day we arrived, we came a little early and were able to take a visit to the housing ministry. And I actually sat in on the weekly meeting where the housing minister uh, talks to the nation. So he has a meeting with his cabinet and it's filmed and put onto state television where they discuss what they've achieved that week, what they've built, what problems they're encountering, uh, what they plan to do in the next week, etc. And they had, at that meeting, they talked about the 8,000 new homes they were delivering this week. This week? Uh, how it was this week? This week. This week. We haven't built 8,000 homes in London in the last 10 years. Well, not for ordinary people we haven't, George, no. no. And no, these are homes for the poorest workers. Yeah. Homes for the poorest workers. In Venezuela, workers have the right to a home, and the poorest people are being constantly rehoused into better homes. And... Um, so one really interesting thing that happened at that meeting was that there were two separate delegations in the meeting. One was a, deleg a delegation of um, athletes who had won medals at the um, Pan American Games recently. And they're ordinary working class kids who have performed for their country and they with their families came to receive the keys to a car and a home from the government as a thank you uh, for their work and they were very appreciative of, of the 
government's commitment to them and their training despite the blockade and the support that they get. So that was one thing that was really interesting. The other thing that happened was uh, they received a committee of self-builders. Now, I don't know if you know, George, but there have been um, 1.7 million homes, no, 2.7 million homes so far delivered under this programme since 2011 of, of building houses for the workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, a third of these, I think 37%, I was told, have been built by self-build teams. So workers in their communities get organised and the government gives them materials and support and they build them themselves. Yeah. And these self-build teams are predominantly women. There are oh, tower blocks, six-storey apartment blocks have been built solely by women in Venezuela. At the gra grassroots level, the revolution is very much run by women. Hallelujah. Uh, this idea of self-build uh, comes from Cuba, in fact. I've uh, traveled with something called the Blas Roca Brigades, uh, ah. which uh, go, for example, if there's a hurricane uh, uh, or damage, storm damage, uh, all the volunteer labor uh, of builders and joiners and glaziers and plumbers and so on, they descend on the damaged area and rebuild the house as quick as you can say Jack Robinson. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I had no idea it was women that were uh, forming the uh, bulk of these brigades in Venezuela. That is very good news indeed. What about the blockade? What sort of impact are you seeing? What can you see with your eyes that you could say well, that's an impact of the blockade? It's very interesting, George, because actually with your eyes, you don't see very much at all. It's very clear that the spirit of the people is to carry on and to overcome the difficulties, not to complain about the difficulties. Um, people are walking around, cafes are open, shops are open, people are getting on with their lives, the factories are busy making backpacks for the kids. They're going back to school in a couple of weeks and every school child will get a, will get a backpack with books, they will get food, they will get uniforms, all provided so they can have a, you know, a good education. And in fact, President Maduro told us at our meeting with him that they intend to make this year the best year yet for education in their country, despite the blockade. But of course, we know it is causing problems and hardships. It's hard for them to get hold of things they really need. Um, small things you notice like you know if you're in a if you're in a building with two lifts maybe one of them isn't working and they can't get the parts to repair it so you queue a little while to use the lift or there's fewer light bulbs you know I don't know if it's saving electricity or saving light bulbs or both but small things are noticeable but what's really noticeable is the spirit of the people now uh, what about the pretender to the throne uh, um, I've forgotten his name already, but the, the, fellow, the fellow who appointed himself uh, the president of Venezuela and was promptly given... Juan Guaido. Gua, well, if you say so. Uh, who was promptly given uh, uh, billions of uh, dollars stolen from Venezuela, not least by our own Bank of England. Um, yeah. Any sign of his supporters? Any sign of him? Okay. None at all. The, the, where, where I've been, and obviously, you know, it's mostly been in the popular working class areas, he's a laughing stock. When people talk about the day of the supposed coup, um, they say, you know, we were there, we were on the streets, nothing was happening. People were at the airport, nothing was happening. Um, sorry? 
Oh, yes. <laughs> in one, uh, we heard a story, an anecdote. Someone went to one of the opposition areas and was trying to call people out on the streets. It's time to rise up. It's time to rise up. And someone opened the window. Now, bear in mind, this is an area where the people are hostile to the government. Someone opened the window and said, go to bed. It's too early. <laughs> Leave us alone. <laughs> so this is, the, this is the mass support that Guaido has. In fact, before he announced himself the president, half of Venezuela had never heard of him. He's not a mass figure. He never stood in an election for president, no. for example, no. which, you know, people in Britain are not really aware of this. No, in fact, Britain is still recognizing him and the Bank of England's not undoing, how can it, uh, the stealing of uh, Venezuela's gold. Other European nice. countries are uh, backtracking and, uh, and pretending it never happened. It's all a bit, a bit, of, right. an, all a bit of an embarrassment now, Jyoti. It's very embarrassing, yeah, because, you know, they, they miscalculated entirely. They hoped that with the blockade, they could create the kind of unrest that would make people feel like they had enough, they'll just get rid of their government. But in fact, what they've achieved is the opposite. The more pressure they put, the more that the people here realize that it's the external forces who want to kill their revolution and take away everything they've gained. And the people understand what it is they've gained. You know, the housing, the musical education, the education, the, the jobs, the, the general lifting up, the community involvement of people. You know, we have seen working class people engaged in running their country. You know, all the people we've met from the Constituent Assembly, I've met several representatives while we've been here of the Constituent Assembly, they're workers. These are real working people representing other working people and working people are trying to solve problems and move society forwards towards a socialist vision. And it's very, you can feel the spirit here of what they're trying to do and they understand what they have to protect. I wish we had some workers in the British Parliament. Uh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It's a, very, it's a very different atmosphere. Can you stay on the line? I've got a caller uh, who might be able sure. to talk to uh, both of us, Fra in Belfast, who's been in Caracas recently. Fra, are you on the line? Yes, George, how are you doing? Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak to people. Welcome. Jordi's still on the line in Caracas, so you could talk to both yes. of us. Yes, brilliant, fantastic. Really, really, really pleased. Uh, I'd like to just second basically everything that Judy has said. Uh, I spent 10 days on a solidarity visit. I was with a group called Puebla, a Puebla which is people to people, which were uh, regional farmers, like a farmers collective in the Yukua province in Karachi. They are growing food at cost price. The only thing being added to that is the distribution costs. And then we witnessed that being distributed in one of the barrios in San Agustin in Caracas. And we accessed the barrio through the cable cars that have been paid for by the Venezuelan people through their taxes and through the, the program of social reform by the Venezuelan government, which I believe spends up to 74% of its budget on its social programs. I also visited the... Uh, the apartment blocks and homes that are being built to rehouse people from the slums and you know they're, they're the ones that i saw have like three bedrooms two bathrooms at their state of the art they're, they're built in complexes that have clinics education uh you know the poverty rates have fallen from like 43 percent to 20 percent uh, extreme poverty is down from 
20% to 5%. One in three Venezuelans are studying, one in nine are in university. That makes that educational population the fifth largest in the world. Uh, what was expressed to me that the real problem caused by the sanctions is the scarcity of food, and that was trying to be redressed by the farmers because of the inflationary pressures that this is putting on the economy. So the price of bread could be, I don't know, say, like 200 bolivars in the morning, but it could be 300 in the afternoon. And what the about real... that, Jyoti, uh, about the food? Uh, did, were you conscious of a, a food scarcity uh, there in the shops, in the stalls, the markets? Personally, George, I haven't been conscious of that. But, you know, I'm not living the life of every ordinary person. I couldn't say for sure that nobody's having any problems. My understanding from talking to people is that they're having to change their habits according to what's available at any time. But what I'm also aware of is that food is extremely heavily subsidised and anybody who's having problems getting food has food delivered to them by the government. They have a programme to make sure people are eating, which is something a long way away from what workers in Britain have. Fra, uh, when you were there, um, as you know, I've, I have a very long association with Cuba and with, uh, with the former leader, Fidel Castro. Uh, I was very conscious, indeed greatly moved, mm -hmm. uh, by the uh, Cuban medical teams in the poorest areas, in these barrios that never had a doctor before, never. No question of them having a doctor, and if they were sick, if they didn't have money, they would have gotten no attention in the past. Now, with the Cuban uh, volunteer medical brigades in, uh, in Venezuela, the poorest people's health has begun to uptick uh, uh, life expectancy, uh, going up, infant mortality, going down, and so on. Did, did, are either of you able to tell me if these teams are still working or whether the blockade is somehow affecting them. George, I was in Karachi as a in the province of the George, Yard, is that as far as the blockade goes, it doesn't mm. affect a relationship with Cuba, that they are able to carry on as before, expressing their solidarity in both directions. Fra. Yes, George, we actually met two Cuban doctors who were in Karachi in this province of Yarkur, just briefly in the street outside of the clinic. Someone pointed them out to us. But one of the major issues around the sanctions is medicine. There have been statistics of around 40,000 people with preventable deaths due to a lack of insulin, uh, blood pressure tablets, Malaria and tuberculosis are both making a return because of the blockades. I didn't see any shortages in the shops. I actually went with a couple of guys who were on our delegation and they bought uh, basketballs for one of the local community groups because the kids like to play soccer and basketball and baseball, uh, some of the uh, American games. So I didn't see any, any real shortages, as I say, just the inflationary... Pressures, yeah. yeah. Okay, Fra, thanks very much uh, for the call. Jyoti, stay on the line if you would, uh, because Bruce in Australia uh, wants to ask us a question. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, hi, George. Um, hi. Just ringing in relation to the Venezuela conflict and also Iran and many of the others, yeah. is that um, uh, because of its oil and its climate, past colonial dealings with countries there, it was proving of little beneficial to the country. And uh, Venezuela itself um, 
took over the oil side of itself and paid off their World Bank loan, etc., and decided it was no longer going to use the American dollar to trade. And since then, of course, the sanctions have come on, which affects everybody, like young, old, everybody else. Uh, similar again in relation to Iran, which January last year um, uh, decided it was no longer going to use the American dollar for trading, and in June, America put on sanctions there. In Libya, uh, uh, it's all involving the American dollar and protection of Well, such. definitely the American dollar is under pressure, particularly from decisions by Russia and China to uh, trade with each other uh, in their own currencies and bypass the dollar. Uh, there's uh, a decision, it's true, uh, of Venezuela not to price in dollars. Ditto Iran. Uh, the role of the dollar as the world's reserve currency is definitely under pressure. Jyoti, what's your take on that? Well, listen, George, we know that the imperialists talk about democracy, but what they want is total hegemony. And they will go all out to try to gain and preserve that hegemony. What's really interesting is that what we are seeing at the moment is an empire in decline and quite swift decline actually and the ruling class in the usa is very much divided against itself uh it's in it's in a state of chaos uh and when we look at its imperial adventures in the last 10 years five years what we're seeing is failure after failure the regime change attempt in syria has been a failure the regime change attempt in venezuela has been a failure the regime change attempt in iran has been a failure the regime change attempt in yemen has been a failure everywhere we look these wars, they're costing the people dearly, and the people who resist are paying a heavy, heavy price. But the resistance is winning. Final uh, word to you, Bruce, in Australia. Tell us, uh, the, what's the Australian government's take? Did they recognize this fellow in the street who said he was the president of Venezuela? Are you one of these? Uh, are you led by these kind of chunks sure, like um, we are? Uh, no, it doesn't really come up in conversation in the street. I watch a lot of YouTube and Duran reports and things like that. And um, it's interesting to note that, you know, as far as the trade war goes and everything else, uh, there was an Indian fellow on the television, or I think he might have been a politician, and he said, well, the trouble with America doesn't treat other countries as, a, as a inclusive. They've, if it's not a win, it's a war. Um, That's a good and line. Then, of course, there's a there's a, there's a, a Dutch um, uh, politician who treats uh, Trump as the man with the carrot in front of the doggy when it comes to North Korea, and he'd probably use the same tactics against Iran. But um, anyhow, um, you're very strong in what you're doing there. Thank um, you. A very very interesting uh, call, Bruce. Thank you very much. Uh, so, Jyoti, what happens now? How long is your delegation in country for? So, in fact, George, I'm actually being called to my flight. I'm in the airport now, about to leave. Well, you better uh, go, I because I wouldn't want you left in Venezuela. Your, your father would never forgive me. I'd be happy to stay, but I think my family wouldn't be too happy. Uh, so <laughs> okay. I had better go, but George, thank you so much for having me on your it's show, and marvelous. I hope to see you soon. You're the first guest that's ever been called off the show uh, because she <laughs> might miss our flight. Thanks very much. <laughs>
Let's take a call from Patrick in Louisiana. Will anyone challenge Trump for the 2020 nomination? You dealt with this last week. Patrick may be of a different point of view. Patrick, welcome to the show. Uh, Mr. Dalloway, it's a pleasure, and hopefully I'm cl coming in clearly this time. I know I've had some technical difficulties in the past. So far, so and good, so press on. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I wanted to ask you or pose this question to both you and the legendary Adam Gary. Um, <laughs> what do you think of the possibility of Trump really seriously being um, challenged for renomination within, you know, the Republican <clears throat> Party in 2020? He has a couple of uh, candidates that are in theory at least running in uh, William Wells, former governor of Massachusetts, who was ironically the vice presidential candidate for Gary Johnson on the Libertarian ticket in 2016, as well as, um, I believe his name is Joe Walsh, who was a very conservative Tea Party uh, Republican, yeah. uh, former congressman from Illinois. He's more right-wing more... Right than Trump. Absolutely. Without, without question, he has a voting record which would indicate as much. You know, there's, there's no doubt about it, but do you see a more serious candidate, a candidate who would be more of a potential threat of actually possibly dethroning Trump and, and you know, winning the Republican nomination in 2020? Or do you think just the way the, the mechanisms of politics are in my country that it's pretty much impossible? Well, uh, I think there's more of a possibility than I think Adam thinks. So let me ask Adam to answer that from his perspective first. Adam. Well, I think that this Joe Walsh, not the guitar player from the Eagles, but this Tea Party uh, former former congressman. I nominate the Joe Walsh from the Eagles. He'd have a very good chance. Everyone likes the Eagles. Hotel California. <laughs> Indeed, which is a song which has become a political metaphor for Brexit exactly in more so. ways than one. Yeah. Uh, but I think technically, yes, it will happen. There, there will be members of the Republican Party who will formally register for primaries that no one thought would be held, but there won't be any real debates because Trump won't turn up. He'll probably tweet something nasty and move on. So it will be something of an exercise in futility. Now, personally, I would find it fascinating if Dr. Ron Paul, the best president the U.S. never had, in my humble opinion, would rejoin the Republican Party just so he could have a debate against Trump, particularly on the Federal Reserve, a, a, a horrendous organization that Trump hates for all the wrong reasons. Well, most of the wrong reasons, at least. That would be very intellectually stimulating, and it would probably inform voter thought for future elections. But as for any serious contender, I don't think it's going to happen. And in fact, there's Joe Walsh, who had a radio show. Apparently, he doesn't have one anymore, because frankly, any Republican challenging Trump at this stage would be a turkey voting for Christmas. What do you think, Patrick? I agree, and I will say this, Adam. I don't know if you're aware, but there's a potentiality of former uh, governor and congressman Mark Sanford of South Carolina, who kind of has like Paulite libertarian bona fides, possibly declaring his candidacy to challenge Trump for the Republican nomination. Uh, I'm not sure how far he will get. Well, what, 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 what you might get uh, in the beginning, Patrick, is what we call here anyway, I don't know if you know the phrase there, a stalking horse. So some no-hoper some guitarist from the Eagles or his namesake uh, enters the field, tests the water, as it were, with the possibility of bigger figures 
coming in uh, in their wake. That's technically possible, isn't it, Adam? It's technically possible, but in practice, no one's going to want to challenge Trump from the Republican Party. What would be the point? He's still quite popular among his base, and he's got name recognition. None of these other people did. I mean, if, for example, there was another titanic celebrity that wanted to take him on as this kind of stalking horse, at least then the media would pay attention. But right now, no one's going to pay attention to Joe Nobody, with, who happens to have a famous name, uh, Trump in the primary. It's really a sideshow of a sideshow. Patrick, thanks very much uh, indeed for your call. Glad to uh, know we've got listeners and viewers in Louisiana. Uh, now, Zodiac9, N-E-I-N, says leaving the EU won't change the EU. Staying in it and changing it can. And there is no way that the government will get post-Brexit will help the working people of the UK. Quite the opposite. Now, I'm going to deal with the second part of that question and ask Adam to deal with the first. And there is no way that the government we'll get post-Brexit will help the working people of the UK. Quite the opposite. So I'm inferring that you're a Corbyn Labour supporter who just declared that Labour and Corbyn cannot be elected. If that's your view, what hope is there for us? If, if you don't even entertain the possibility that anybody but the Tories can ever be in power, what is the point? We might, I might as well shut this show and, and move to Moscow. There'll be no point in being in Britain, because there's no democracy in Britain. A Labour movement can never win. Why are you so, not pessimistic, fatalistic, nihilistic? Harold Wilson won four general elections. James Callaghan, if he'd gone in the September, instead of waiting until the next year, winter, would have been elected in 1979. Michael Foote, if Mrs. Thatcher had not been given the bonanza of the Falklands War, might well have defeated the Tories in 1983. Thatcher was on the floor before the Falklands invasion. If Labour hadn't chosen a prime turkey, Neil Kinnock as its leader, they might have won in 87, certainly might have won in 92. Tony Blair won three elections. You see where I'm coming from here. But for 4,600 votes cast in the right place, Jeremy Corbyn would have been the Prime Minister. No, and for the last two years, that's all. That's all he was short of. Less than 5,000 votes in key marginal constituencies. If you think there's no point in politics and that we need foreign leaders in far-off places, far more right-wing than you, to save the British working class, 
What hope is there for you, for us, for the things we believe in? Adam, Zodiac 9 believes the EU can be changed by staying in it. Disabuse this nonsense, please. Well, if there's a husband who beats his wife constantly, wishful thinking has a track record of resulting only in more bruises for such a victim. Now, I don't want Britain to be a beaten wife. I want it to be a healthy, free-trading, democratic, normal nation like any other nation that fits that category. And to another point, because if, if one could discern a tone from a text, which isn't always possible, it seemed as though the gentleman was suggesting that it's somehow the British government's responsibility as to what occurs in the EU's 27 members. Well, it isn't Britain's responsibility any more than it's Britain's responsibility to dictate what happens in Syria or Libya or Iran or Venezuela or the part of China known as Hong Kong. It's Britain's responsibility to take care of Britain and to trade with others and to make good agreements to promote peace with others, no more, no less. Well said. Scouser Law says, outstanding opening monologue Indeed on Moats. Thank you very much for that. I fear he's right, he says, about the result of the next UK general election. I pray that I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain, actually, that I'm right. And I think it's probably too late for Labour to do anything about that now. Even if Jeremy Corbyn were to say tonight, actually... I absolutely accept the result of the referendum. I was not lying in my manifesto in 2017. All I'm arguing about are the terms on which we are going to leave and in the future relate to our former EU partners. Even if he said that tonight, and I nightly pray that he does, and I'm not the only one, I can assure you of that, it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference because Jeremy Corbyn isn't running the EU policy of the Labour Party. And one or two other things too. Ask Chris Williamson about that. It's Keir Starmer and Tom Watson and Emily Thornberry and John McDonnell and Diane Abbott. Imagine, Diane Abbott wouldn't have got a seat on the front bench as a junior spokesperson in any Labour leadership in the history of the Labour Party, and neither would John McDonnell. But Corbyn has put them there. Corbyn has supported them when they were under ferocious attack. And what has he got in return? What kind of loyalty have they shown him in return? They have already announced their own individual policy on the EU. John MacDonald announced it, that he'll be campaigning for Remain in a second referendum, which Labour said it was against, but now is in favour of, and MacDonald will campaign for Remain, whatever the Labour Party decides to do. And Diane Abbott weighs in and says, so will I, so will Thornberry. So we'll start, so what Jeremy Corbyn might, in the answer to my prayers, decide to do is now immaterial because Labour's brand has been utterly toxified in the places that they need to win 
and in many of the places they already hold. Thanks for that, Scouse Alar. Hope to see you at the Leinart Hotel in Liverpool. Uh, Filza, long-standing listener and correspondent, makes this point. Modi and Netanyahu were both re-elected this year. Both are occupiers of illegal lands, both committing war crimes, and no world power has uttered anything against them. She's right about that, isn't she? Absolutely right. And that's the failure, frankly, of the United Nations, because it's not anyone's unilateral responsibility to save the world. And frankly, most people who utter those infamous words, I'm going to save the world, are responsible for quite a lot of death and destruction. Hitler and Pol Pot were just two idealists who killed many, many people for their perverse ideals. But it is the responsibility of the United Nations and the preamble to its charter it even says that its goal is to save successive generations from the scourge of war. This includes occupation, this includes regional strife, it includes a whole litany of conflicts. Now, the UN is impotent. I do think there should be some sort of UN, and I think the first way that I'd reform it, and I know it's not going to happen, but what ought to happen, in my view, is that the, the duties of the Security Council should be transferred to the General Assembly, and every nation of the world should have an equal voice and an equal vote without any one or any two or any five having veto power. If you were to move the UN in that direction, I think at least it would be a much more fair organization. It's never going to happen because, yet again, Turkeys well, don't vote for Christmas. Yeah, the Security Council would have to vote for that. But It'd have to abolish it, itself. That's yeah. not going to happen. It should be moved out of the United States. There's no case for having it in a country that routinely uh, abuses refuses to fund, and uh, frequently acts outside of the United Nations framework. Yeah, I think it should probably be in Switzerland, because as a rich country, it wouldn't be a drain on the resources, but as a neutral country, it wouldn't have the stigma that a, an empire uh, like the modern U.S. has. Yeah. So I think it all, there are already some U.N. bodies that are in still Geneva, in Switzerland. Yeah. Yes, I just think move the whole thing over there. Next up is Nestor in Maryland. Nestor, welcome. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Um... Well, I had uh, I wanted to uh, make two quick points, uh, uh, specifically to Adam. Um, well, point number one is he thinks that no one can primary or even have the chance to run against Trump in a primary. Doesn't he admit that the Republican Party is uh, uh, bankrupt in ideas and they can't offer anything other than Trump? And second, if, <laughs> if that's the case, then why does he think so... Um, so uh, surely that no Democrat can um, can even have a chance. Now, I personally think Bernie T uh, Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard would have the best chance and best opportunity to beat him. And I would be, you know, uh, questionable about any other Democrat running. But but isn't it kind of a contradiction if he thinks no one can even dare challenge Trump? No, it's and not that he no, he's, he's, uh, If I can speak for him, it's not that they won't uh, shouldn't dare challenge Trump. He just thinks that Trump's going to win. Anyway, he can speak for himself. Adam? 
Well, yes, indeed. I mean, there, there will be challenges, but it will be a bit like the ant challenging the lion. It will happen, but it won't be noticed. And insofar as why I think Trump will win, I think unless the recession, which is coming, because they always do when you have a fake monetary system, so long as it doesn't hit too badly before November of 2020, and I don't think it will hit too badly before then, and everything else more or less stays as it is, I think Trump will have quite a record to run on. People might like it or dislike it, but he does have a clearly definable record and most of the Democrats are frankly rubbish there are not many good ones yeah but N Nestor's point is if, if Bernie Sanders was the candidate wouldn't he have a shot I personally believe that Bernie Sanders could beat him but, but we you, have our old hat you and I have trip. a wager Indeed uh, we do. on that but what would you say to Nestor's view that Bernie Sanders can take away a part of the blue-collar, formerly Democrat, constituency that Trump was able to win because of hatred of the Clintons, the NAFTA, and all of that. Well, in 1972, a man of the left called George McGovern challenged Richard Nixon, and this is before we knew how corrupt he was. Now, Nixon is one of the worst presidents in U.S. history, not for Watergate, but for Goldgate. He sentenced every subsequent generation of Americans to increased poverty in real terms because of his breakage of the dollar with its previously indelible link to gold. Then there were the price controls, then there were these constant economic interventions which were supposed to help the poor but only hurt the poor. They hurt the person looking for a job. Uh, they hurt the person that wanted to go out in the world and make something of himself. And he was challenged by a man who quite rightly opposed the war in Vietnam that Nixon prosecuted. And he was someone who said, look, the economy needs to work for working people. Whether I agree or disagree with how is immaterial. Now, we could be in a similar situation with Bernie Saunders playing the role of George McGovern. McGovern was, of course, famously uh, beaten in a landslide. In, in a landslide. And I think that although in many ways I agree that Bernie has a better chance than Biden, not least because Biden has lost so many of his marbles he can't even recall where Neil Kinnock put them in the first place. For those <laughs> with a bit of a political memory will remember that he plagiarized... Plagiarized Neil I Kinnick. mean, to plagiarize, if you want to... To plagiarize is bad. To plagiarize Neil Kinnick <laughs> is unforgivable. Quite so. Uh, uh, Nestor, last, uh, last word to you, my friend. Uh, well, uh, I can see what point Adam's making, but at least, you know, uh, the difference between, I would say, between Nixon and Trump would be that, you know, Trump just takes off the mask. He shows what... Uh, U.S. foreign policy is about, uh, he doesn't really know how to hide anything. Uh, he's very out there and he shows like the true nature of the empire where, you know, uh, back then, uh, Nixon and other presidents, they would hide it. They would at least yeah. pretend but, to but, but, you're, but Nestor, your point presupposes that people in America don't like what they see. I'm not so sure you're right. Thanks for an excellent call. Let's go to Pam in Toronto in Canada. Pam, go ahead. Hi, George. How wonderful to hear that accent. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I was wondering, George, and I hope you and Adam can uh, answer it. I'm wondering how much you think that neoliberalism is actually driving the whole anti-Brexit uh, in, in England. 
Well, because these people have had a hole, yeah, starting with uh, Thatcher, it's a consequence on Britain of for years. Yeah, it's a consequence. Look, Pam, people were yeah. asked, people were asked in Britain, effectively, do you want to vote for the status quo that you have, the life that you have, the expectations you have, the sense of security you have, or not? And people said not because we're not happy with our lives. We haven't been for decades. We haven't been happy with our country being de-industrialized. Our people thrown onto the scrap heap. But how many people, heat. George, how many Brits know that at the foundation of it all is neoliberalism? No, I mean, no, it's not many. so well masked. Yeah, yeah, not, not many, but that isn't the point, is it? They got a referendum, they got a one-off opportunity to say, F you, we are not at all happy, and you better listen to us. That's what they did. Isn't that Adam? Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, I think that neoliberalism has been discredited, but it isn't yet dead. And that's because it's still sort of trying to claw its way back. I sort of define it, I suppose, as a bubonic plague. It's not dead, it's ill, but it's infectious. And it's not going to go away until all of the forces opposed to it. Even the bubonic plague hasn't gone away. Well, true. It's, <laughs> it's under the ground somewhere. Quite. Let's hope it stays there. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's only going to be pushed back under the ground if left, right, centre and all of these other forces which oppose neoliberalism can agree on the basic principles that the old way is the wrong way. And that was the beauty of the Brexit referendum, where people as diverse as Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson and you... Uh, George, uh, David Davis and Kate Hoey, who spoke with you and Nigel at that very important uh, uh, event before the vote took place, and you all turned out to be on the right side of history, until all these disparate forces say, we don't necessarily agree on the road after neoliberalism, but let's agree to fight the plague together. Excellent. That's going to be important. Pam, last word for you. Yes, well, I, I truly, truly hope uh, that those who want Brexit uh, do succeed. But I'm very suspect of the neoliberal powers that be because of the whole infrastructure. I yeah, mean, they've well, been... Look, uh, uh, Pam, that, that'll be the case whether we're in the European Union or not. Exactly. I, I cut you short only because of the hour, Pam. It's a delight that you called from Toronto. But we've got a legend on the line. Mm -hmm. And no show is complete without Norma in Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Not much time. Um, I saw an Enoch Powell uh, in Bristol when he was campaigning in 1974 against the European Union. Yeah. Not my favourite man and no. not much chemistry between Tony Benn and Enoch Powell, as Adam said. But um, all he said has become true. The only thing that I was a bit worried about is the Irish border problem. Uh, instead of worry, how do you think Boris Johnson will solve this? Adam. Well, the entire thing has been the biggest canard, the biggest charade, The biggest frankly. red herring, a green herring. No one's going to build a hard border. Not Varadkar, not Juncker. Merkel's not going to put on her workman's lederhosen and build it on bended knee. Donald Trump's not going to build it. 
all of the customs checks can be done in a computerized way and indeed uh, all customs checks in first world countries are generally moving in that direction there's a man called tony smith uh, who's quite an expert on this he's talked about it he's written a dossier about it the entire thing is to quote you the mother of all smoke screens no one's died over it but the great irony and the great hypocrisy is that no one is going to yet to hear project fear the it's a though plagues, locusts, frogs and the rest of it will fall out of the sky in between the island of Ireland. It's simply not going to happen. It'll also uh, accelerate uh, Irish reunification, uh, Norma. There's no doubt that, would be yeah, a good, and, uh, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. But I think that's um, probably um, I'll be dead by then, you know. No, <laughs> actually, I don't think you will be, God willing. I really don't. I, I mean, there are not many things left uh, in the time I have left that I have fought to achieve, that I'm likely to achieve. But that is one of them. Actually, Irish reunification might come just as swiftly as in the end German reunification did. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely great. It, it honestly might happen because you have, if you like, the perfect storm. Uh, the people in the north of Ireland want to remain in the EU. Yeah. The EU insists uh, on uh, a border, even though they won't build one, uh, neither will they police one. Well, there's an open invitation, therefore, and a constitutional route to do it through the Good Friday Agreement to hold a referendum on Irish reunification. And hey presto, Bob's your uncle, a country that should never have been separated, is reunited, and people who didn't want to leave the EU are now still in the EU. I can't understand when I get attacked, as I do, rather monotonously and rather dispiritingly, from Irish Republicans and Irish nationalists uh, because of my support for Brexit. You ought to be thanking me for the role I played in helping to win the Brexit referendum because the Brexit is the biggest recruiting sergeant for the reunification of Ireland you will ever get. Last word to you, Norma. I think that's very idealistic, George. Uh, I don't think they like each other from time to time, but I hope you're right. Thank you. How's your husband? Oh, he's fine. He's listening to the proms. Well, he is a cultured man, but make sure he listens back to the mother of all talk shows, if only to hear his good wife uh, saying uh, her usual wise words. Thanks very much uh, indeed, Norma, in Bristol. Sadly, uh, Adam, we're out of time. I'm really sorry to all the people who called, who wrote, uh, but uh, to whom we were not able to reach simply because of the pressure of it. This has been a big show tonight. I think uh, much of its content will live and be referred to uh, in the future. Uh, I think it will travel well on social media, tell people about it. If you agree with me, make sure they listen back. If you're on Twitter, uh, then listen to the clips, retweet them, spread the word, because I'm determined. You see, one of my remaining ambitions in life is that one day I'm able to say to you, one million people listen to all or part of the mother of all talk shows last week. And I think 
that that is an ambition that can be realized. Big thanks to Chris and Elena and Ron and James and uh, Jamie, all the people uh, through uh, the glass and those I didn't manage to reach. It's been uh, very well produced and presented, I think, the show tonight. And uh, it's been marvelous for me. And if it was for you, then come back at the same time, in the same place, next week for the mother of all talk shows and bring another listener, viewer with you. Good night.